Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, November 26. Tom Tilley with you. And in this episode's briefing, the deadly English Channel boat tragedy. You might remember the news that broke yesterday that a dinghy full of migrants capsized, killing at least 27 people in the English Channel. And this deadly incident really put a spotlight on a much bigger problem. It's also escalated the tensions between France and the UK. It also shows the operation that's been conducted by our friends on the on the beaches. They haven't been enough. That's the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson on the boat disaster. That is our briefing in just a moment. Our first Janfran is here for today's headlines. Good morning, Tom. We're starting in the Pacific where Australian peacekeepers will arrive in the Solomon Islands today after the nation requested help following two days of rioting. We have always been there to help our Pacific family when they have needed us. And this is such a time. We believe in their their sovereignty. We believe in their self-determination. That's Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, announcing the operation yesterday. So an advance party of 23 Australian Federal Police will arrive in the capital, Oniara, today and will be followed by 50 more officers and 43 ADF personnel. Yeah, now the PM has uh, made it clear that this is a a peacekeeping force that is just there to to restore order to the Solomon Islands. He said that the request came from the Solomons, again, after a second day of rioting, which saw shops being looted and burnt, and this was in protest against the island's government. So a lot of this tension is about Chinese investment in Solomons. Yeah, I mean, the cause of this appears to be a diplomatic rift. So in 2019, the government of the Solomon Islands switched their diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China. There is a province, though, in the Solomon Islands that have maintained strong relationships with Taiwan. And it's particularly people from that province that are protesting against the government because they believe the government is disproportionately supportive of Chinese interests in the country rather than local interests. And that's why we're seeing Chinese businesses burnt. It's happened before as well. It happened in 2006 because rioters believed that Chinese business people interfered with the election at that time. So there's been a history there in the Solomon Islands of this kind of stuff. And the Prime Minister's pushed back on a move to introduce a federal corruption watchdog, saying he doesn't want a body like the New South Wales Independent Corruption Commission. The former Premier of New South Wales was done over, Mr Speaker. I'm not going to have a kangaroo court taken into this parliament. Yeah, he's talking about Gladys Berejiklian there, former Premier of New South Wales, saying she'd been done over. Um, This is despite three of Gladys's former parliamentary colleagues taking the stand at the ICAC hearing and saying that she should have declared a potential conflict of interest over her relationship with disgraced former MP Daryl Maguire. So done over or just? Held to account. Held to account, yeah, exactly. Accountability, transparency, that's what most people want from their politicians. So the background to this is that the government, Scott Morrison's government, three years ago promised to bring in a federal corruption watchdog. They haven't done that yet. And one of their own MPs, Bridget Archer from Tasmania, was so frustrated by that that she crossed the floor yesterday to support a motion on a corruption commission from an independent MP. It wasn't enough to get that motion through, though. The government was still able to kill it off. It was enough for the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, to question whether Scott Morrison had lost control of his own government. Hasn't the Prime Minister lost control of the House, lost control of his senators and lost control of his government? No. Okay, no. The context to that question, um, though, was that earlier this week, five government senators crossed the floor as well, to vote in support of Pauline Hanson's anti-vaccine mandate bill. 
that bill was rejected by the Senate, but not a good look, I think, for Scott Morrison, particularly in the lead up to an election, which we know is happening next year. Yeah, so we're in the middle of um, the last two sitting weeks of the parliamentary calendar right now, and it's proving to be a very messy series of sittings. And a Melbourne man who spent three days being questioned over the disappearance of missing campers Russell Hill and Carol Clay has now been charged with their murders. The 55-year-old pilot, Greg Lynn, is expected to face court today as police begin a search for the bodies of the couple in Victoria's Alpine National Park. Yeah, the charges come 20 months after Mr Hill and Miss Clay disappeared while camping in a remote corner of the park, leaving behind a burnt-out campsite and an abandoned car. Yeah, sounds like there's a very bizarre, grisly story behind all of this. And some more easing of restrictions for New South Welsh people. Is that that what we're calling them? Sure. Go for it. (laughs) The state has announced that masks and QR code check-ins will only be required in high-risk settings, and this is as part of a move to ease COVID restrictions in time for Christmas. We've just taken a prudent course of action to keep those QR check-in codes going in those higher-risk settings just for a little bit longer. We'll continue to review that over the summer. That's Stuart Ayres, New South Wales Minister. So from December 15, or whenever New South Wales hits 95% double dose, masks will then only be required on public transport and at airports or for front-of-house hospitality staff who are not vaccinated. And check-ins will only be required for hospitals, aged care, gyms, places of worship, pubs, small bars and clubs. It comes as News Corp reports that the federal government will send a letter to every Australian household calling on people to book in for a booster COVID shot. It's booster time, people. There's going to be more than 1.5 million people due for a booster shot by Christmas Day. And the UK is pushing for British police and Border Force agents to be allowed to patrol a section of French coast in an effort to prevent more channel crossings. This is after yesterday's boat tragedy. Our offer is to uh, increase our support, but also to work together. So Boris Johnson there, it'll be interesting to see how the French and the UK can work together after this tragedy of at least 27 people dying. Katrina Blau is about to join me for our briefing on this topic. As you'll hear, this year's been an absolute shocker for migrants trying to cross that very dangerous stretch of water. Jam, we'll catch you later. Okay, now to our briefing on yesterday's shocking boat disaster on the English Channel. This morning on a beach southwest of Calais, a group of people set off for Britain. The biggest single loss of life in the channel. After a migrant boat capsized and sank. A fisherman spotted a number of bodies floating off the coast near Calais in northern France. It's obviously a horrific and tragic incident. So this is the largest loss of life from a single boat on the English Channel in years, and it's thrown the EU migrant crisis right back into the spotlight. So the English Channel between France and England is one of the busiest shipping channels in the world. It has strong currents and bitterly cold water at this time of year. It's incredibly dangerous for these small craft, but I guess they're tempted, Tom, because in some parts the crossing is only 33 kilometres long. Well, that's right. It's famous for people actually swimming across it. I've been across on a ferry and it's a very turbulent, dangerous patch of water. What yesterday's tragedy really highlights is actually the big trend here. We've seen a record number of migrants attempting this crossing in the last year. Official figures estimate nearly 26,000 people 
have done it in small boats in 2021, which is three times the total for the whole of last year. That's a huge spike. So mm. on the 11th of November, a total of 1,185 people arrived in England by boat, the most in a single day. And of course, in October last year, a Kurdish Iranian family of five drowned while trying to get across. One of their children was just 15 months old. Yeah, wow. Over a 1,000 in one day is huge, and that's just a couple of weeks ago, so it shows there's definitely a situation building there. It's causing some political tension between Britain and France. Britain's saying the French aren't doing enough to control their coastline. The French have responded by putting 600 police on the north coast around the clock, so it'll um, be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, a manslaughter investigation has now been launched into this latest tragedy following claims people smugglers had charged those on board thousands to get to Britain. Mm. So on today's briefing, we're looking at what's led to this explosion in numbers on this incredibly dangerous route and, of course, the political fallout from this latest tragedy. Steve Kinane is the ABC's Europe Bureau Chief. He's based in London. Steve, thanks for joining us. How significant is this tragedy? It's the biggest single loss of life in the channel since the International Organisation for Migration started monitoring that traffic from 2014. If you look at the bigger picture, around 25,000 people made this trip in the last year, and that is more than three times the amount of people who made the trip last year. So we're seeing this happen more frequently. It seemed like they were trying to cram in more trips before winter. It's nearly winter here in Europe. There were some reports of you know, around 20 of these little dinghies, they're like rubber dinghies, uh, leaving in the last 24 hours. So you could see that there was a sense of urgency that the people smugglers were trying to get these dinghies across the channel before the weather set in. It's an absolute tragedy. And you get the sense that this will be a tipping point and the governments of Britain and France will do something about it and try and stop this people trafficking going on between the two countries. What do we know about this this latest tragedy? Were they wearing life jackets? It seems like it was extremely overloaded. People smugglers have no ethics and they will overload boats and often won't provide life jackets. And even going back a few years now, we saw almost fake life jackets being used when they were smuggling people out of the Middle East across to Greece. And often the people who are travelling come from landlocked countries or countries where they just do not learn to swim. So it's a terrifying situation for them to be in the water in the first place. And if they go overboard, well, often they just can't even float. We don't have details yet of which countries these people came from, but if we look at the history of it, they're most likely from either the Middle East or North Africa. I was in a refugee camp a few years ago now in Ventimiglia in Italy. What I learned that day was that there were a lot of men mostly in that situation who had come from North Africa for a better life. They were coming to Europe hoping to get to countries like Germany and Britain. So what happens to them once they do arrive? What's been happening in the past? Well, they can seek asylum. Um, and so when they arrive, that's that they have to say that they want to seek asylum. And then the British government has to go through their checks and to see whether they meet that criteria or not. Now, I don't have access to the latest figures. I don't know how often Britain is granting asylum. You have to weigh up whether someone is genuinely fleeing persecution or not. Of course, sometimes people just want a better life for themselves and for their children, as anybody would want. So they have to go through a process, though, to see whether they are genuine asylum seekers or not. Britain has been criticised for not taking enough asylum seekers 
in recent times, but also not allowing the reunification of children with their parents who may already have residency in the UK. So, Steve, has Brexit played a role in this at all? I'm not sure about that. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's much harder for people in the old EU to get into Britain and to live and work here, that's for sure. But I think in these instances, it's a case of people coming from outside of Europe and then trying to make it to Britain. So I suspect it probably hasn't had an impact. You'll remember when Boris Johnson, before he was the Conservative leader and then the Prime Minister, he was a big part of the Brexit campaign and he talked about taking back control and controlling borders. That was a big part of the rhetoric during the Brexit debate and the referendum. Mm. But there's a sense here that they don't have control of the situation at the moment. And I wonder whether they will start employing tactics that Australia used when it came to turning around boats and also trying to do more in France to stop people getting on boats in the first place, as Australia did with Indonesia going back a few years now. This is a fairly well-worn pathway. What does happen on the French coast and what happens on the British coast? Do they patrol these waters very heavily? They do patrol them, but, you know, it's a big area and they're dinghies. They're not large ships. So not so much that they can't get through. I mean, 25,000 people in one year is a lot. And I guess the question is, could they do more on the French side of things? Well, the British government thinks so. Could Britain do more on this side? Well, I guess so. But is the will there? I think it will be more so now. I just think in Australia, it took a tragedy at Christmas Island for more action to happen. Um, Certainly that changed people's attitudes. And I suspect in this instance, it was already becoming a problem for the Conservative government. The fact that the numbers were three times higher than the previous year. And I think now they will act and you will see more resources going into this issue. So given we've had this big explosion in numbers this year, has has this been on the agenda for a while? Has this just been building and building? Definitely. Um, and I think a lot of people thought that at the end of summer, the numbers might drop and they did start to drop, but they've escalated as they've tried to cross in before winter. But I mean, the sad thing is, is that this is a marketplace and people trafficking is a a black marketplace. There's a market and there's people willing to do it. Four people have been arrested linked to this particular journey already. There's a demand and there's a supply. And this is what's going on at the moment. And there's a lot of people in lots of parts of the world. And we're going to see it more with what's happened in Afghanistan as well. There are going to be flow-on effects due to what's happened there. There are a lot of people who want to escape from the countries that they're in at the moment. Steve, it's it's pretty interesting that they come, you know, you're saying most of these people are coming from the Middle East or North Africa, and they're coming all the way through these other European countries and still wanting to take the risk to cross the channel to get to Britain. Does that suggest that they're economic refugees rather than asylum seekers fleeing persecution? Because lots of those other countries they go through could protect them from persecution. Yes, they could. They could seek asylum in those countries. Um, The figures of those getting granted asylum in the UK when they arrived after arriving by boat was relatively high, which suggests Mm. that there were people genuinely fleeing persecution. There is an argument that if you are fleeing persecution, going to the next country should be enough and you should then be trying to find a better country. Um, That argument is made. But sometimes when you arrive in certain countries, be them in Europe or other countries, you don't get much protection. I was in Hungary a few years ago and asylum seekers who'd arrived there, they couldn't get language lessons, they were struggling to eat. 
So in certain countries, even within the EU, if you've arrived and even if you've been granted asylum, life is not great. The thing is that people smugglers sell lies to the people that they traffic. Sometimes those lies can be about the safety of the journey. Sometimes those lies can be about how easy a certain country will let you in. Sometimes they might be portraying Britain as a country that treats asylum seekers a certain way compared to France. Um, And that may be why they're getting on the boats. It's very hard to know what kind of lies they're being sold, but we do know that that's what people smugglers do. Let's talk about the people smugglers. What do we know about them and how they organise these trips? Do they organise the trips all the way from the start? We do know, you know, it's a form of organised crime and there are people in the countries that these people are coming from who then have contacts in other countries, you know, they have transactions, you know, they're paid a certain amount of money to get someone to a certain place. If you look back at how it used to operate between Australia and Indonesia, I mean, they used to buy boats off fishermen and put them on those boats. And so it can involve people in situations like that too who aren't necessarily involved in the network but are suddenly helped to facilitate it happening. They're normally quite complex and um, they're often involving organised crime. They see a marketplace just like drugs. That's Steve Kinane from the ABC in London. Um, Katrina, just earlier this week, we did a topic about the migrant crisis on the other side of Europe, on the border of Poland and Belarus. Yeah, and as Steve said, uh, even though we're now heading into winter and it's becoming even more treacherous to cross the channel at this time of year, these numbers are spiking because of what's happening in places like Afghanistan. And we could see even more numbers as the year goes on. All right, the weekend briefing will be in your feed tomorrow. Uh, Jamila's actually interviewing um, Matt O'Kine. She's talking um, about growing up without his mum, um, racism, um, his experience of that and the challenges of being a parent. Um, he's a fascinating and a very funny guy, Matt O'Kine, so I look forward to that on the weekend briefing tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our hardworking team, executive producer Dan Mullins, uh, news producer Liam Kennedy and Brooke Lauvner, Matt Cuz Curry on the editing and Emily Lodge on our socials. And don't forget to get involved in the briefing Instagram quiz. It'll be up just before midday. Listener.